Breathlessness, we found a bit like pain, is not an easy thing to articulate. The idea of helping us to understand how our decisions about whose life matters will shape the future to come. At least they prove I do in fact have breath. Welcome to our Viral Theatre podcast, a series of four podcasts based on the 2021 hybrid conference on the topic. I'm Heidi Dietke, Assistant Professor of English Literature based at the University of Koblenz-Landau, Campus Landau. I'm Monika Petschak-Franke, Professor of British Cultural and Literary Studies based at the University of Vienna. In this third episode, Jay McNaughton, in her talk, The Past, Present and Future of COVID-19, The Role of Medical Humanities, provides some necessary terminological and theoretical groundwork for a discussion of the entanglements of the arts and medical humanities. In her talk, she also introduces us to some inspiring projects and suggests ways in which the arts and humanities could offer translational interventions in the future. When Heidi and Monica asked me to, um, to do this, I was a little bit nervous about it because I felt I didn't have much expertise in this field of, of the arts that you're considering at the conference. Uh, but I think you're going to hear from a great number of experts and performers. Sounds like a fascinating programme over the next couple of days. And, but what I want to do from my perspective as a medical humanities scholar is contextualise this within the wider picture of the relationship between the arts, humanities, social sciences and medicine. And why our contributions might matter in these difficult times, uh, times that may offer opportunities as well for us to build a new post-COVID future. So I was very interested to read the blog post that Heidi and Monica referred to in their rationale for the conference. Uh, Kirsten Oster, who is a professor of English at Rice University, picks out a couple of key contributions the arts and humanities might make. One is to give historical and cultural context to the pandemic. She writes, we must learn to construct meaningful narratives that link human behavior to data about disease. And she thus sets what's happening within a larger historical picture. And the second is a more forward looking idea, the idea of helping us to understand how our decisions about whose life matters will shape the future to come. And this, Oster argues, is a critical value of the arts and humanities because they place health within its wider social, economic, cultural and ethnic context. And crucially, we're able to craft compelling stories. The arts are able to craft compelling stories that call out things like systemic racism, but also enable us to imagine and think about what life might be like in the future. So this is a persuasive thesis and one that's reflected in a great deal of activity, I think, that's happened online, conferences and workshops that have been taking place over this time of COVID in the arts and humanities. One such initiative here in the UK is one by the British Academy called Shape the Future. The SHAPE acronym stands for Social Sciences, Humanities and the Arts for People and the Economy. And it's set against the idea of STEM, STEM subjects being science, technology, engineering and maths. The British Academy initiative insists on the importance of these shape disciplines to inform future policy. 
they held a series of workshops summarized in this diagram here, if you can read, it's a bit kind of woolly looking. And this led to five key principles for policymakers and researchers. The principles include the importance of using a broad knowledge base in policymaking, not just focusing on the medical, biological and physical, but the importance of being responsive to local and historical contexts, a renewed focus on inequalities and inclusivity, sustainability and the environment in our post-COVID planning. So very much like Oster, there's an emphasis on awareness of the need for broadening the sources of knowledge that might inform a post-COVID recovery, and a sense that awareness brings with it a responsiveness to local and historical context, circumstances and needs. But I think there's a bigger ambition to be articulated here, and one that this conference is obviously wishing to embrace. That is a desire not just to uncover the problem, but to address it, to actually be involved in imagining a future and helping to build it. So part of my remit is to speak to the background field of medical humanities. So I'm going to move on to say a little bit about that and then kind of build in some of this potential for the future. The medical humanities has tended first and foremost to be associated with the ways in which the arts and humanities help us to understand health and the experience of health. And then as much as it's intervened in healthcare, traditionally medical humanities role has been in the education of practitioners. And this is Howard Brody's take on that in 2011. Saw so, uh, medical humanities as in three kinds of ways, as a list of disciplines. So, you know, English literature, visual arts, um, history, philosophy, a range of disciplines that might help people to understand the experience of health and illness better. And secondly, a programme of moral development, the sense that we can understand and appreciate the ethical context for medicine by reading great works of literature, by seeing films, by observing the ways in which people uh, interact uh, within these different art forms. And thirdly, as a supportive friend, the idea of that being after a tough day at the coalface of clinical practice, listening to music, visiting a gallery, reading a novel is a soothing and supportive thing to do. But this approach, I think, while being of value, influences only the ways in which clinicians practice, but it doesn't have any effect on what they actually do. So our institute in Durham has been central to evolving a new conception of medical humanities, which we've called critical medical humanities. The approach of this field is one that genuinely takes seriously the fact that the knowledge and methods of the arts and humanities are not just an add-on or an enhancement to clinical practice, but they have serious things to say about how ill health is produced across a range of sites and scales, and indeed how to tackle it. And my colleagues, Will Viney, Felicity Callard and Angela Woods, in fact, suggest that medical humanities should intervene more explicitly in questions of etiology, pathogenesis, intervention and cure, rather than leaving such questions largely to the domains of the life sciences and biomedicine. And despite its name, critical medical humanities is not just there to critique, to criticise, uh, to say to biomedicine, you've got it all wrong, because patently that's not true, as the success of our vaccine programmes around the world has shown, and many other examples have shown. 
But the aim is to work in tandem with other disciplines, including biomedicine, in order to find new ways of addressing ill health. So it's a kind of critical approach that's interdisciplinary, that respects the approach of other things and tries to find new kinds of methodologies for understanding and addressing health problems. At the Institute for Medical Humanities, we research what we think of as hidden experience of illness. This means health issues that may be hidden for a wide range of different reasons. They might be hidden to the person experiencing the problem because people don't identify the symptoms that they're experiencing as a pathological problem. Uh, for example, in the project that I'll be saying a bit more about later, breathlessness can be seen as something that just happens because you smoke or you're getting older or you're not very active. And problems can be hidden to the outside world because of stigma related to, for example, mental health. And illness can also be hidden because medicine has not got the right tools to reveal it, such as people experiencing medically unexplained symptoms, possibly also the new condition of long COVID might come under this headline. The idea being that perhaps medicine's particular approaches don't have the sophistication or the interdisciplinary sophistication to be able to uncover what's actually wrong. So a couple of examples of our, of our project work that shows the kinds of things that we do, a project called Hearing the Voice um, explores the experience of hearing a voice in the absence of any speaker. That experience is known to medicine as auditory verbal hallucinations, but it's something that commonly occurs for people who have no psychiatric diagnosis, particularly as some of you may have experienced following bereavement. The project team includes people from psychology, psychiatry, literary studies, medieval studies, theology, history, and also writers, artists, and musicians. So this is an example of a, a radio play that was written for the Hearing Voice Project, which um, reflects a range of real imagined past voices heard in a walk through the city of Durham, where we live and work. And the second project is this project, The Life of Breath, designed to explore the experience of breathlessness, involving, as you see here, people from clinical medicine, literary studies, history, philosophy, anthropology, and people with experience as well as artists. And I'm going to say a bit more about the work of this project later to show some examples of our work in the arts and demonstrations of how that engagement has led to real outcomes for patients. So this is not just the matter of us trying to kind of put this forward and is in the imaginations of our field of medical humanities. There's increasing recognition that the arts and humanities could play an important role in improving the health of the public, as it says here in this um, report by the Academy of Medical Sciences in 2016, who particularly draw out the importance of the role of the arts and humanities in engaging and helping to understand and address public health problems. So what we've got in the COVID epidemic, I think it has really revealed above all what the field of critical medical humanities has always insisted upon, which is this deep entanglement of social, cultural, historical life with the biomedical. And what's so fascinating about the current crisis, were it not so devastating, is the fact that historians and cultural commentators are watching these elements of our collective lived experience connect and disconnect in real time. It's a bit like watching history in Fast Forward, and it makes academic researchers rather wary of commenting too quickly or with authority, because the next day everything might be quite different, and that's particularly a, a function of the start of this pandemic. 
the pandemic, I think, has demonstrated clearly the meaning of culture, that it's not a static entity, but is produced and evolved through interaction and relationship. It's interesting that the COVID pandemic in some circles is now being referred to as a syndemic. A syndemic is when two or more current or sequential disease clusters take place in a population, adding further insult to injury, as we've seen with the interactions of COVID and health inequalities and systemic racism. So let me turn now away specifically from medical humanities to illustrate some of this broader entanglement by focusing on two key points of discussion during the COVID pandemic. Responses to the health inequalities revealed by COVID and historical comparisons with earlier flu epidemics. And I think this just illustrates this kind of deep entanglement, um, the ways in which we really do need this interdisciplinary engagement um, to understand what's going on here. First of all, looking at inequalities, the experiential and allied emotional trajectory of the pandemic has taken different shapes across nations, but there have been some commonalities, I think. Asla et al. examined over 140,000 news headlines from major international news outlets from December 2019 about the pandemic and noted a preponderance of headlines in the negative sentiment category that you wouldn't be surprised with. There was common negative words being pandemic, Trump, outbreak and virus. And the word fear also featured prominently uh, as a fear of death, but less so a fear of the key symptom of COVID, which is breathlessness. This or allied words such as breath, somewhat surprisingly, don't feature amongst the negatively emotive words. Now, from a medical humanities perspective, the idea of breath as a critical function for life and as a metaphor for our times has been central during the period of the pandemic, signaling the way in which we as humans are united, but also how we're different. At the outset of the pandemic, people comforted themselves with a sense of solidarity, a feeling that we're all in this together. But this soon collapsed as it became clear that the virus was killing more people from BAME communities and areas of lower socioeconomic disadvantage. These COVID-orientated concerns about breath gained metaphorical force in May 2020 when George Floyd, as you remember, a Black American man died after a police officer in Minneapolis knelt on his neck, compressing his trachea for almost eight minutes. His final words, I can't breathe, echoing those of another victim, Eric Gardner, became the rallying call for a new anti-racist movement, Black Lives Matter, that galvanized people across the globe to gather in protest marches despite the COVID threat. So these connected themes of breath, suffocation, post-colonial oppression, silencing, inequality, have all come together during the period of the pandemic, crossing clinical, scholarly, and public discourse. They've stimulated significant calls across these fields for change and pathways to a new, more equal and caring future. One such is the response of the prominent UK epidemiologist, Sir Michael Marmot, whose 2020 report, Build Back Fairer, the COVID-19 Marmot Review, proposes a way forward to address the searing health inequalities emphasized by the epidemic. Within the academy, the call for decolonizing the curriculum has become louder and more attention has been paid by the Global North 
to scholars with authoritative voices from the South. The Cameroon philosopher and theorist Akio Mbembe summarizes the current mood accurately in his short essay, The Universal Right to Breathe. He catches the sense also in the Marmot Report and across lay and other media of the need not just to return to normal, but to shape a new normal. In his essay, Mbembe concludes, before this virus, humanity was already threatened with suffocation. If war there must be, it cannot so much be against a specific virus as against everything that condemns the majority of humankind to a premature cessation of breathing. Everything that fundamentally attacks the respiratory tract, everything that in the long reign of capitalism has constrained entire segments of the world's population, entire races to a difficult panting breath and life of oppression. To come through this constriction would mean that we conceive of breathing beyond its purely biological aspect and instead as that which we hold in common, that which by definition eludes all calculation, by which I mean the universal right to breath. So turning a bit to the um, entanglements with social, with historical comparisons, these, these entanglements with social views often led by, as well as reflected in the media, clinical responses and scholarly interpretations are apparent in the comparisons between the COVID-19 pandemic and historical flu outbreaks, especially those of, of 1918 to 19 and also 1957 and 1968, as described in this book by Mark Honigsbaum. The trajectory of this relationship has been a constantly shifting one through this pandemic. In early February 2020, the US edition of the magazine Wired, which discusses future science, culture and technology, cautioned against the notion expressed in a personal health and fitness magazine that flu is a bigger threat to the US than COVID. This was a view that was prevalent at the time before COVID really took hold and expressed across a range of media outlets, including the Washington Post. And as early as a month later, the Times was reporting the view of Liverpool-based virologist Calm Semple that it was time to abandon the myth that coronavirus is no worse than flu. But even now, in the past couple of weeks in the UK, the comparison with flu is being invoked as we are encouraged to start living with the virus just like we have with flu. The comparison with flu outbreaks as the most recent and deadly to the global north is understandable as it aligns the frightening unknown, that's COVID, with something familiar and potentially more predictable. So as these examples illustrate, the culture of COVID is being produced and reproduced across these entangled sites of understanding and interpretation. History reports that despite the appalling loss of life in 1918-19, it's largely forgotten by the collectivity of society, as Honigsbaum says. It remains to be seen whether and how we'll remember COVID. There's a role for the arts in vivid remembering us here in London, reflected in many other countries. And this is important, but it seems more urgent and important that the problems the pandemic emphasized and in some cases revealed, including stark health inequalities, should be addressed more effectively in the future. And in thinking about this, I found it helpful to reflect on some work by the anthropologist Vinchan Adams on the idea of anticipation. Writing before the pandemic, Adams suggested that a defining quality of our current moment is its characteristic state of anticipation, of thinking and living towards the future. 
At that time, this insight was directed towards things like risky health behaviours that might lead to problems in later life, like smoking and overeating. But it's wholly appropriate for our current context. As Adams and colleagues say, anticipation is not just betting on the future, it's a moral economy in which the future sets the conditions of possibility for action in the present, in which the future is inhabited in the present. A good example of this is global warming, is increasingly a moral imperative to protect lives on the planet in the future by acting forcibly now. But one problem with the post-COVID future is that it's less clear what needs to be done. We know what the desired outcomes might be, more equality, abolishing systemic racism, equitable income distribution, support for young people, but how to get there needs new thinking. An important aspect of the anticipatory episteme that Anne Adams describes is that of abduction, she says, which describes the need to tack back and forward between future pasts and present in order to frame templates for producing the future. The arts and humanities, as I've illustrated, have the capacity to facilitate this kind of tacking back and forward, making sense of the present in relation to the past. More importantly, producing templates for the future requires those attributes that the arts have in abundance. Creativity, thinking differently, asking new questions, disrupting accepted norms. And it's here, I think, that the arts have an important role in helping not only to imagine what that future might be like, but also to reframe the ways in which we think about health, illness and recovery. In the final section of this talk, I want to turn to some specific examples from my own work about how this might be done in a narrower frame. They don't specifically refer to COVID, but I think illustrate the principles. And then I'll move on to some slightly bigger, kind of more generic thoughts. So one major outreach aspect of the Life of Breath project I mentioned earlier was an exhibition called Catch Your Breath, which aimed to raise awareness of the experience of breathlessness, which is such a pervasive clinical condition, but which affects older people, usually in relatively disadvantaged areas because of the habit of smoking and because of the kinds of jobs that people have had in those sort of past industrial areas. And we wanted to challenge the stigma that hangs around the condition because it tends to be thought of as self-inflicted. Invisibility was a key theme of our work on the project, partly related to this stigma and shame, but also because of breathlessness relative invisibility in the clinical context. Treatment for chronic breathlessness are not very effective. It's a condition often wrapped around with a sense of hopelessness. So the exhibition featured the work of the artist Jane Wilton, whose artistic focus is on making the breath visible. This work, called Breathe, was the result of workshops at the Royal Brompton Respiratory Hospital in London, where Jane captured the breath of patients on copper plates. Not only are these rather beautiful works, but they reflect the different forces by which individuals were capable of producing an outbreath. Crucially for the patients involved, as one comments in response to this image, which was made by capturing breath on sensitized paper, at least they prove I do in fact have breath. This seems like a throwaway comment, but in fact, it's important. Data printouts on a page as a result of spirometry, the measurement of lung function in the clinic, are relatively meaningless to patients, but seeing an image of their breath was significant. And it was also meaningful 
in the way in which these images actually reflected their own experience of their breathlessness. There's often a mismatch between clinical assessment of lung function and people's own perception of their own breathlessness, a problem known as symptom discordance. It can be as high as 60% in people with asthma. Seeing something on a page that reflected their experience supported the patient's own perceptions and sense of themselves. So this mismatch between experience and clinical measurement found parallels in people with breathlessness having difficulty giving voice to what they were experiencing, another problem leading to invisibility. Conversations with our colleagues in breathlessness support groups revealed that they didn't really talk about their own experience very much in the groups, focusing on other things. Breathlessness, we found a bit like pain, is not an easy thing to articulate. Even within the clinic, the sensory experience is formally articulated through metaphors such as air hunger or the work of breathing. As part of the exhibition outreach, we organized writing workshops for the breathless support groups with a poet. And what came out of these was extraordinary. The poet, a Northeast poet called Christy Ducker, supported participants to find metaphors and new ways of thinking and speaking about their breathlessness. And this is one poem by Leslie Hughes, in which she reflected upon one of Jane Wilton's works in our exhibition. This is a glass sculpture, which was made actually horrifyingly by not just blowing glass, but actually inhaling the blown glass, which was really scary when Jane told me about it, because I thought, crikey, she's going to burn her own lungs by inhaling this hot air from the molten glass. But she created this extraordinary sculpture, which she called breath drawn in upon itself, um, like an in-breath from the lungs. But here, Leslie reflects upon this smoothness, clarity and beauty and about her lungs, which feels so heavy. And this one, which again struck me very forcefully by Jill Gladson, one of the members of the group called A Chance, which demonstrates Jill's frustration and pleasure at finding a voice at last to talk about her problem, her breathlessness. She, she writes, a chance, grab, grasp with gratitude this chance to speak. To say what? Can I do it? Do we have the courage? Do we have the language? We have the thoughts, mostly hidden, but words denied, or rather not asked for, over the millennia. Thoughts fly, words flood. Whose language do we use? Who can share? So what we can see in those two examples of artists engaging with people with breathlessness, the ways in which the arts can reframe how people experience and think about their condition. But my final example perhaps involves the most radical reframing of the clinical approach. So one of the things we did was a dance project with people with breathlessness. And um, I think just getting some of the comments here, she says, when I'm dancing, I'm no longer myself and my right, my left and my movement, I forget I'm ill, this sense that people when dancing rather than taking the standard approach to breathlessness treatment were really engaging with their bodies in a way that they hadn't for a while. So just moving on to this research in the project, I think it demonstrated for me two key insights that I think are crucial for the arts in the context of public health. Firstly, the artist who's leading people along this new journey of exploration into art, poetry or dance sees the person not as a patient, 
as a problem to be solved or a difficulty, but somebody with creative potential to learn, develop new understanding and new ways of moving and enjoying the body. And secondly, these interactions with artists reminded us that lived experience is a dynamic thing. Human beings are not the static entities seen and defined in the clinic, problems needing solved, but they need to be conceptualized as in constant conversation with their social and environmental surroundings. And this is reflected in this work by the anthropologist Tim Ingold, who talks of human beings not as beings, but as becomings, as entities, as trajectories of movement and growth. And I think that's a really important aspect of our understanding, the possibilities and potentials that the arts can open out. So these examples, I think, show specifically how arts engagements in a critical medical humanities project can reframe questions and change ways of thinking. But what's been striking to me in the broader picture of the arts is during this very challenging time for the arts and artists is that arts has found a new way to communicate with the public on a broader scale. The formal spaces in which arts are viewed, such as museums, galleries, theatres and concert halls, have been closed. But art has moved out onto the streets in a range of forms, murals as in here, uh, theatre on your doorstep, dance on your doorstep. And art has been springing up to transform the communal outdoor spaces that we've all been making use of more during lockdown. In a sense, the arts have become democratised with people feeling able to express themselves by contributing to public art, embellishing it, making their points about it, as example here, the mural of Marcus Rashford, Rashford the um, English footballer who was very much involved in food poverty. So paradoxically, I think this time of COVID crisis has made the arts more visible, despite the challenges for the sector. The arts have become a filter for our emotions. They've supported a new sense of community that's arisen, given voice to express thanks to those who put themselves at risk been a tool to communicate public health messages, uh, also been a focus for political critique. And this seems to reflect a sense of hope that there is in the public behind a desire to progress a fairer post-COVID future. I'm sure you'll return to many of these themes through this conference and also engage with the challenges now for a sector that despite this vibrancy has suffered desperately from loss of income and audience. The arts have a crucial role to help us reflect on and learn from the past and make sense of the present and imagine and anticipate a better future post-COVID. The real challenge is to make those imaginings real for the post-COVID future, a challenge the sector I'm sure will respond to. And I look forward to our discussions. Thanks very much and sorry for rushing at the end there. And thanks to collaborators on the Breath Project and the Wellcome Trust, our funders. Thank you very much.